0: time for another stellar edition of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Karen Caballero here to announce show number 58 with guest Tony Bain, recorded live Friday, April 2nd, 2004. Carl is away this week, and Rory's guest co-host is none other than Uber Geek Microsoft employee Chris Sells. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on BB.net and ASP.net classes remotely online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics makers of ActiveReports.net simple, powerful and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications online at www.datadynamics.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine. Microsoft technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. In by Peter Bloom. Offering stellar yet very affordable ASP.NET server controls. Including validation controls, date and calendar controls, and much, much more. Online at peterblum.com. And now, the funniest bastard I personally know, Rory Blythe. 20 feet wide,
1: strap it in tight, cause it's a long, sweet ride.
2: Alright, well, thank you very much, Karen, and uh, everybody else for tuning in. Um, this is .NET Rocks, and you're probably noticing that something is a little different today. Alright, so what's going on is Carl Franklin, the usual... Uh, regular host of the show, is off in Indiana um, giving a class, and he is obviously pretty unavailable. So the place he's at is called Atlas Van Lines. We're going to get a shout out to those guys and move along. So I'm Rory, and for the week, for the Bizarro episode, I am going to be the host. And with me in Portland, Oregon, as you probably heard in the intro, is super-duper cool Microsoft Uber Geek. You know, all I got was Rory Blythe. So Microsoft, super duper duperly, uberly, cool, uber geek, Chris Sells. You there, Chris?
3: I am. But, you know, I have to point out, Rory, that you got far more than just, um, you know, Rory Blythe, right? You got um, the funniest bastard I personally know. <laughs> and, you know, I've never been billed like that.
2: Yeah, okay, Although, fine. Okay, that's I true. Did
3: have, I, I did have one case where my wife looked at me and said, that I was a cold hearted bastard. <laughs> and and I said, uh uh-uh, uh, because you know, my parents were actually married by the time I was born. So you're just cold hearted. Well, it's it's funny, but my wife came right back to me and said, Ah, but your parents had the marriage annulled. <laughs> so uh it was ten thirty at night and I was calling my mom and asking her what she had to say about that.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. Um I guess uh I guess good for you, good for me. Um, that's kind of an interesting little story there, Chris. <laughs> so what's going on? Like what's going on out there on the on the West Coast where I lived in so, until so recently?
3: In so Oregon. I was just noticing, I read um, the IEEE. I'm a member of IEEE and they send me their, their little magazine. And I, I was reading everybody. yesterday that um, a bunch of the universal constants that we know and love have actually changed.
2: What are you talking about?
3: I'm talking about that they have remeasured from... Five years ago, so the the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, NIST.gov, our own government agent that tracks agency that tracks these things, they have actually tracked a difference um, between, you know, like uh, Avogadro's number in the last five years. In fact, I did the calculations, and Avogadro's number is point zero 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 seven percent different. In only five years, and the bad news is it's decreasing, which means that the number of molecules in a constant mass is now lower than it used to be.
2: Yeah, did everybody get that? Um. <laughs> <laughs> but well, think what
3: that means. That means that the universe is expanding at a non-zero rate, and
2: eventually, if it keeps up, we'll it's, all never be gonna, it's never going to collapse. Is that what you're saying? I'm just saying that it's not collapsing yet. Okay, all right, so if everybody got that, the universe is not collapsing yet, all right? That's the kind of stuff we thought we'd tell you about today. The managed coders out there who are sitting around kind of wondering if the universe was yet, you know, entering its collapsing stage. I guess it isn't quite yet because Adagavago's number indicates that...
3: They don't teach that in VB school?
2: <laughs> yeah, they totally forgot. And they don't, they don't teach it in Roy Dropped Out of High School school either, okay? And they also don't teach it in Rory isn't a member of the IEEE Super World Council of Smart Guys school either, all right?
3: But, okay, but I guess the reason I bring this up isn't because the universe is expanding and that disturbs me. Oh, okay. But rather, because if universal constants are changing at a noticeable rate...
2: Right. Then, then my nobody- clock's wrong. Well, then what? My, my clock's wrong. That's probably the problem, eh? <laughs> yes, because the number That's the of implication. atoms in your clock. I'm going to be late. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay. So the well, so as you were saying before I interrupted.
3: <laughs> so, but if if universal constants, right? I mean, the speed of light. All of these constants are changing, and if they're all changing at some noticeable, measurable rate, then nobody has any uh, grounds on which to. Uh, complain about the rate of change of technology because we're just trying to keep up with the universe as a whole
2: <laughs> well that was a bit so of that, a stretch um.
3: <laughs> i really had to go for that one didn't i
2: <laughs> all right well cool um so i guess we might as well just get right along with things here we we heard about the universal constant autovago number change from chris which we're all waiting for and um, actually oh you know what though before we move along Chris as long as you're doing the show as long as you're doing us a favor let's do you a favor is there right. anything you're trying to sell right now or unload on the unsuspecting millions that, that you'd like to make a little bit of money off of? what do we got going on here like maybe uh, what do I see in my crystal ball like a comic book collection
3: actually it's uh, yes I am actually uh, selling a two decades old comic book collection it's 30, 36,000
2: copies right it's actually 2600 well yeah but universal constants are changing all
3: right. Yes, but that would be that would be the same number of comic books, but fewer <laughs> mo- molecules in them.
2: Yeah, right over where He said, "Whoop, okay." So anyway, we got the uh, how many how many issues are you trying to sell?
3: Twenty six hundred, and they're all available on eBay through this great uh, startup I found in uh, Seattle called Bidadoo. And what they do is they do all the goo associated with putting up, especially you know like collections and things up on eBay. They figure out how much it is, and they. Um, Uh, They bring in experts to evaluate things and tell them how to bundle it and price it. And they they take all the pictures and they put it all up on eBay and they handle all the shipping. And then they just take a percentage off the top and they send you a check.
2: Cool. All right. So uh, if anybody wants to go out and buy those comic books that way, you can do it. Or you can just send me a check and I'll give Chris a cut and everything's good. So, All right. So now let's get on with uh, the rest of the show. And the first thing we like to do, Chris, since you are the new co-host... This is kind of funny, because you know the, the host chair opened up, which meant that the co-host chair opened up, which meant you had to fill the co-host chair, although you're actually going to do one of the host bits right now, and that was pretty complicated, but I just had even more complicated than, than you know, that guy's number stupid thing. Um, For people that
3: can't pronounce it, they typically call it Avocado's Number. Avocado's
2: then, Number. I like that, yeah, because we just, it's, it's yeah, like we a hooked-on phonics on sort of thing. You know, yeah. it's dumbed down to the Rory level. It's like those Fisher-Price toys, where you... Spin the thing in the center, it goes moo. You know, I mean, that definitely takes a lot of the sting out of it for me. Associated with something I know. That's what journalism
3: majors who find themselves programming computers generally generally say.
2: Okay, so everybody, Chris is going to be reading the fan mail today. I hope that doesn't freak you out too much. Um, It is is Bizarro episode, so this is going to happen. And Chris, do you happen to have the email up in front of you and ready to be read? I do. You gave me
3: far uh, more than enough time to get that first email up.
2: Good. All right. Well... Then let's let's get on with it. So um, this is an email
3: from Michael Kennedy, and it says, hey, Carl. So he's going to be really disappointed when he hears that Carl's not involved <laughs> at all. Uh, Michael Kennedy from UnitedBinary.com. So apparently they've got all the ones and zeros over there. <laughs> and it says, hey, Carl, I have been seriously listening to .NET Rocks the last month or so, as opposed to what he was casually listening, I guess. <laughs> I have just about listened to the more recent half of your shows. It's almost time to start at the beginning with the older ones. I really enjoyed them all. I was listening to your show with Kevin McNeish about object spaces. I'm a big fan of typed data sets, so I expect object spaces will be right up my alley. This is just an editor's note uh, for me. I expect so, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to object spaces myself, so I think that's really cool. Also, I'm writing to let you know. This is the letter again. That a friend of mine, Scott Bellware, has written the best Object Spaces overview article I've seen to date, and then he gives an URL. Keep on .NET rocking. Regards, Michael.
2: Cool. All right. So I, I don't know how this works. I think we're supposed to figure out something like send him a mug or something, but we'll we'll get to that later. You know, we're just the we're just the temporary host. Yeah, we the We'll let the let we the professionals know. do the actual work. Yeah, we'll figure that out later. Or actually, I guess I'll figure. Or somebody will. Okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt. God, Chris, please continue.
3: Uh, so, so how does the protocol work? Are we supposed to...
2: Oh, well, well, typically we would, um, read the mail and if there's anything immediately pressing about the mail, like, uh, I've got a grease fire, how do I put it out? Then we would, (laughs) we would answer that question. But if it's more of just like a comment kind of thing, like, hey, you know, the show's good and I'm enjoying myself and I like object spaces and you like object spaces, then, uh, you Know we just kind of move on to the next one and we say thank you very much for the mail. You're a very nice listener, you are a favorite listener, and then we say the exact same thing about the next person. So,
3: <laughs> all right, so okay, so so far, Michael, I have to say with all honesty, you are my favorite fan mail listener.
2: <laughs> You're right. doing pretty good for, for yeah, a, a first timer here,
3: yeah. Uh, okay, so here is one from uh David Eggins. Uh, and he's from industry.gov.ua. So he's from the Australian government. Wow. And I didn't. Do did they really have a government in Australia? I thought it was <laughs> it's just, just wild west out there.
2: Big collective, people hanging yeah. out, surfing. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. So, okay. He says, hello, Carl and gang. So I guess we're the gang. Um, could you recommend an automated coding standard source code modifier? I could not come up with a better name for it. I think that's a fabulous name, David. Uh, I need to point a tool at our VS.net 2003 projects and have it modify all the code to conform to our standards. I have heard about tools to do this but cannot lay my hands on any at the moment. I also figured you would have the resources to find out which the best ones are. What information like this would also be handy for your listeners?
2: Thank you, David. So, Chris, do you have anything off the top of your head that might do that?
3: Actually, well, it depends on what his coding standards are. Okay, If his coding standards include things like where... Well, I mean, the beauty of Visual Basic is that, you know, the coding standard is built right into the tool, right? You press enter and whammo, the coding standard takes effect. But um, other languages are uh, a little more forgiving about such things. And, like, for example, the semicolon enabled
2: languages, I assume <laughs> that's, that's enhanced, the kind of thing. right? Yes, yes. The semicolon enhanced, right?
3: Now with semicolons. so the, my So there have been a bunch of tools over the years. I mean, this has been something that has gone on ever since we had code that didn't have to start at column seven. I mean, this, the <laughs> need to format code in various formats, if we're talking about formatting code as you know, there are various tools, commercial and free tools out there. I can't point to one that's better than the rest, except my personal favorite unfortunately is still under development ah. and, and it's part of uh, visual studio 2005. I don't know if you've checked out that beta yet, David, but there is, uh, no, we're not even at beta, sorry, the the preview, Um, but there is a ton of source code formatting options more than I would ever want or need in the new Visual Studio 2005, and if all you care about in your coding standard is the way things are arranged, then you're all set. If you care about more than that, um, for example, how variables are named or you know, that there would be fewer than one line, one bug per two lines of code, things like that, um, you're going to have to get some other kind of tool. And actually, I don't really know of any tools that actually hmm. detect the bug thing, so that's going to be a problem. But f- things like fxcop can go through and check all kinds of things, like, you know, these classes all have to have a d- default constructor, or these classes have to be have variables of this name, type, or, you know, things like that. But fxcop but is, is your... The-
2: Doesn't FxCop, though, go through and ensure that your code complies to the Microsoft standards? Isn't that the job of FxCop?
3: So so FxCop, by default, comes with a ton of standard rules that Microsoft themselves runs against the .NET framework and all the libraries and the code they ship to the world. Right. But it's extensible. So if you wanted to either turn off any or all of our rules that we ship with and add your own, you can do that.
2: Okay. Well, I'm a little less ignorant now. Cool.
3: Well, I can only do so much.
2: <laughs> so do we have any more
3: letters in there? Oh, yeah, we have plenty. Uh, here's one from Michael Elsdorfer from Elsdorfer.net. He has his very own domain, <laughs> which, you know, is always a sign of class and style. And his, uh, his, the subject is, I want useless crap, but make it look like I have some suggestions.
2: <laughs> well, that was so a really this- good idea, man. Thanks for the uh, really good suggestions.
3: So, yes, exactly. Well, oh, we can just skip the formalities if you want and just send, <laughs> just send crap. you
2: stuff. Do you just want a check or cash? You know, we'll just work something out here. Why don't you just mug us?
3: <laughs> so, Michael is also going to be disappointed when he hears me reading his fan mail because it says, Hi, Carl. Hi, Rory. Like last week's show very much. Thanks for your great work.
2: Uh, well, today, today, Chris, you're polymorphic. All right. <laughs> I, which, well, I guess, well, wait, am I Carl or Rory? Co-host equals co-host as Carl, all right? Yes, but
3: that doesn't make any sense, right? Because you're normally the co-host. Well, so yeah, but today I'm the Rory? host. Shouldn't I be like drawing, you know, cartoons <laughs> that nobody can interpret and <laughs> and pointing out other people's penises and, and referring to my mom a
2: lot in my blog? Shouldn't I be it's, doing uh, those kinds of things? It's my grandmother, and that's a totally different Rory Blythe. So is there any more fan mail in there? We got no, anything yeah, going does, he on? Does, he or does actually he have a body asking? to this message, too, oh, if you're
3: interested fabulous. in it. fabulous. Uh, just a little suggestion. What about employing an expert for choosing the Linux vulnerability of the week? Ooh, ouch.
2: An expert. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, wow. Do we have experts on the show? I guess the guests,
3: right? <laughs> Not the host, certainly. <laughs> he also has some interesting suggestions for future guests. Um, of course, Miguel, you know, uh, please, please, please try to get Miguel on the show. It would not only make Chris A. happy, but would also exchange the range of potential listeners to the whole mono and open source community.
2: And that, that's because, referring to Chris Anthony, the, the Linux guy who's been commenting a lot on my blog lately and who has recently picked up a copy of Windows and VS.net to give everything a shot. Anyway, sorry, Chris. Yeah, in fact,
3: uh, I wasn't reading his stuff until you pointed out. And it was funny, too, because I read that, that post about him picking up Windows yeah, And
2: I thought, wow, what a reasonable guy.
3: And yeah. then I started reading the rest of the posts on his blog and changed my mind pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. Not not uh, not too reasonable, but at least he's giving it a shot, right? At least he's going out and he's going to check things out and he can decide for himself based on technical merit what his opinions really are about Microsoft stuff instead of just listening to the opinions of his friends in IRC. So that's a good deal. I, I
3: agree that forming your own opinions is always a good thing. Yeah, fantastic. Even amongst the Linux crowd. <laughs> okay. So, but I do agree that getting Miguel on would be fabulous.
2: I've I've thought oh. that too. Actually, I've thought about getting. I've I've thought about trying to get him on the show. It would be a really interesting perspective, a really interesting dotnet perspective.
3: Well, well, if you need help there, I've uh, I've talked to the guy several times, so I'm
2: happy to reach out to him. I figured you knew him. I'm Chris Sells. I know everybody. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I figured you'd know him, and uh, we might just have to talk to you about that a little later on.
3: And then he also said he wanted some Borlanders on. Borland recently, uh, December two thousand and three, to be exact, shipped Delphi eight for the Microsoft net framework. Oh, I think I think they are the first certified net partner or something. Hmm. And then well, he that lists, would be interesting. Um, Danny Thorpe or Anders Olson or Alan Bauer as people to as Borland guys to bring in the show.
2: That that would be interesting.
3: I love that idea actually, be, just because. I'm just curious how, well, I mean, this is, I mean, the common theme here is, right, how non-Microsoft folks are making use of .NET. Right. Right, so, I mean, that's a good theme because I'm a big fan of .NET everywhere.
2: Cool. We got anything else in that stack?
3: uh, Just uh, good luck on today's show. Uh, Michael, P.S., Rory, did you know Outlook's spell checker does not know your name?
2: Oh, yes, I did know that. That will change, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, if anybody out there is listening, this is a pretty big oversight, so let's just get that fixed. So, is that the end of the fan mail then, Chris?
3: That is the end of the fan mail.
2: Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, for writing in. You know, we always appreciate hearing from the fans and stuff to tell us that either they like what we're doing or that we suck, because either way, we get something good or we learn something. So, you know, never never hesitate to write in.
3: Do, do people actually write in with, you guys suck?
2: I get those personally at my site all the time, and... uh. We do occasionally get complaints from people out there because, obviously, any time you stick something on the internet, you're attracting everybody in the whole universe, right? Some people might just stop over once for thirty seconds, read three letters of what you've written, and determine that you're a total bastard, and they'll write to let you know it, and then they'll disappear and they'll never come back. They just go from site to site, insulting people, and uh, and never following up on it. I'm sure you've gotten a bit of this yourself.
3: I mean, kind of like a drive by consulting, <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. They just stop blog to blog and say things. And, yeah.
3: Yeah. Actually, I have gotten plenty of um, people sending me either personal email or blog comments to letting me know that either they don't like, you know, what I said or right. they just don't like me personally.
2: Or that time that you tried to express your own opinion on your blog and it went a little haywire. Remember that? Well, and that was a mistake. I, I,
3: I do remember that, but I, I, uh, I, I cleaned out the herd that day, I'll tell you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I just love the way that people put so much weight and importance on their own uh, decisions to leave, though. I mean, going through the comments in that particular blog, which I guess we won't bring up because you never know what kind of other fan mail you're going to generate. Um, just the people who write nothing but unsubscribed. You know, like, what's Chris going to do when he runs into this in a powerful little message you know is he going to be on his knees weeping just oh god if i could have just kept that one reader you know it's a it's a it's kind of a bad scene okay so what we usually do now chris and everybody else who's listening is the google weirdos thing and uh, we have a little theme song here and i'm gonna play it and i'm gonna hope it comes out of the computer because i'm new at this whole running the show thing and we'll just see what happens yeah we all uh we all woke up with headaches the next morning you know that was, that was hilarious i've never quite a, heard that before quite a weird night all right so for those of you who don't know google weirdos is the spot that i do on the show where uh, I talk about a lot of the ways that people are getting to my site. I comb through my logs and I look at the referrals. And I like to isolate the Google searches and see what kind of weird phrases brought people to me. Because usually they don't make any sense at all. Although, and long-time listeners are probably sick of hearing this, but I got to do it anyway for those you know extra few people that have probably you know shown up today. Um, people who have caught on to Google weirdos are using it to contact me personally. They're using Google as their own personal one-way email mechanism. And it's pretty cool. So what I do in Google Weirdos is for the first half, I read the quote fan mail that I get because a lot of it is usually pretty inflammatory. And then for the second half, I go through and I read the actual search phrases that people used to accidentally get to my site. So we'll start out here with the first uh, shout out to me through Google. And And I... I've got one good one here today that I'm going to read first. I've got to do this for my own ego, all right, because I get enough negative comments, that it's always nice to get these. And it says, Rory Blythe is the coolest man ever, all right? Now, that's, that's pretty nice stuff.
3: And that was the search. Somebody went to google.com and said this?
2: Yeah, but they know that it's going to get to me. See, people have caught on, and they've learned that they can communicate with me through Google. They know I'm going to look at my referral logs. And they know that's going to show up in there. You'll you'll get you'll get the hang of this as I go through the rest of the searches here.
3: That's an interesting way to make it through your spam filter. That's for sure. It is fascinating.
2: Yeah. So here's another one. I am the colon of Rory Blythe. I'm trying to figure. I, I mean, that's just nuts, right? I am the colon of Rory Blythe. And like the I'm, other one
3: wasn't nuts enough, <laughs> right?
2: So I'm kind of looking at myself, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, like we're gonna to have to talk colon. I don't really know how you how you got on the internet and typed that in the middle of the night while I was sleeping or whatever. Next one.
3: Well, wait, I have to know. Did he mean the part of the ana- anatomy or the C-sharp language construct?
2: I think he meant the part of the anatomy. Let's just no, get just... real here, Chris. I mean, All right. Well, I'm just you're stretching. Your you're stretching. This is like the avocado number thing. <laughs> you're Stretching too far, man. Sorry. Sorry, man. No, it's okay. No no harm done. Moving on. Man, I need to get Roy Blythe's site because I forgot the effing web address. I can't say the F word on, on the air because it would make me feel naughty. But it is in there, and this is an interesting way to find my site. Next one is I blame Rory for monkey stink. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's my fault. I don't think I don't think I made the monkey stink, but I. I guess. I <laughs> Chris, know who liked, that was. Chris liked that one. <laughs> <laughs> so we got another one here. Teach me Java, Rory Blythe, and you know what? That's no problem, right? So uh, we'll start by setting up your class path. Do you have three hours to talk about this? Um... <laughs> Moving on, is Rory Blythe Jesus? No, I just think I am, and it's totally different, okay? Not the same thing. Moving on, Rory Blythe is my role model, and you have good taste, my friend, but this is a dangerous path you tread. I don't know if I'd recommend it. And then here's one from somebody who's obviously been listening to uh, a lot of Monty Python recently, and Chris, last night during the sound check, I'd like to point out that you told me that you have been listening to a lot of Monty Python recently, so maybe this has something to do with you, I don't know. Rory Blythe, I have farts in your general direction. You wipe better of other people's buttons. So come Stop on, Chris. Or I shall
3: taunt you a second time.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, see, you were too, you were too close on the follow up there, Chris. That was obviously you. We'll just talk about that at the end of the show. Um, next one oh. is, next one is, I want to have Rory Blythe's children, and I can, I can definitely help you try to do that. Uh, and then finally, here, wait, 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 wait.
3: <laughs> I think it's time for Google to start taking pictures as part of their search criteria. Right? What do you mean so exactly? someone Who wants to have your children can submit, you know, a resume? Oh, no.
2: <laughs> this is like the Windows registry, Chris, you know. I mean, it does one good thing at the beginning and then eventually 10 years later you know, it's being used to store like last night's chicken, you know, so, so maybe we should just leave Google doing what it's doing now. And I know how you feel about the registry. I remember that post in the uh, off-topic list about eight months ago where you were asking what's wrong with storing extra things in the registry. And we all had a little difference of opinion there. Yes, yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> so anyway, so here's the last uh, shout out to Roy through Google. And this is the one that you guys have to own up to. Anybody who's trying to contact me through Google, this is the one to beat. All right, this one's long. Hi, Rory Blythe, what's happening? So I really like Google weirdos. That's funny stuff. Do you think those super vegan people that won't eat veggies if it kills the plant would eat an iguana tail? I mean, it didn't kill the iguana. <laughs> Holy cow, that was a search. That was a search, and it got to my site. Uh, I think Google should
3: tell them, I don't think they should accept that much text if they're not going to also accept
2: pictures. I just <laughs> well, think that's wrong. You write Mr. Google a letter, okay? And, and cc <laughs> it to your congressman.
3: You know what somebody could do though? Huh. They could base 64 encode the picture. I guess that's. A, get, that is clever. They can put that as part of the search string.
2: I'm Chris Ellis. I'm so clever. Watch me be clever. That is clever. I like that. That's actually a really good idea. Somebody out there has to give that a shot. Well, actually, that's getting a little freaky. I mean, it's clever, but maybe just best left at home, you know. That is clever though. Bravo, Chris. I like that.
3: Well, it's not my first time. <laughs>
2: Okay, so now we're going to move on to the not shout-outs. These are the actual Google weirdos. And they aren't always funny. Sometimes it's just sort of, what was this person thinking? Sometimes it's not all that weird. We just call Google weirdos because you need a name for branding so that later on you can stick it on Frisbees and lunchboxes and sell it to people, all right? You mean those other people weren't the weirdos? No, those are the normal people. Oh, my God. No, but these, these next ones, you'll find that some of them really aren't that weird. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes you have to put a spin on it and make it a little weird yourself. All right, so the first search is Tammy Faye Baker crying, which I thought was a little redundant, right? I mean, is she ever not crying? You know, does, does the fountain ever shut off? She's just like a total, constant, eternally weeping font. Moving on, we've got methadone freezing point. Now, that's a weird one because if you really need to know something like this, shouldn't you already have access to the information? The methadone, that's, what that's do you need true. to know, the methadone, you're asking Google what the methadone freezing point is?
3: I like the idea that, that Google is providing uh, <laughs> a home instruction kit for you know illegal activities right. as well as legal ones.
2: I wonder if maybe the idea here, I don't know how methadone is put together or, or whatever or what it actually does, but maybe the person's kind of trying to isolate the methadone itself from whatever it's mixed in with. Now I'm probably just giving people ideas, so we should probably just move, move along. Um, got another one here? Sign a wife is cheating. And let me tell you, if she's got neapoleon.com tattooed on her bottom, then she's probably cheating.
3: Wait a minute. All of these searches end up at your site?
2: Well, think about it, Chris. I mean, I write about absolutely everything. If I just wrote about .NET, then I get a lot of, you know, like how to make C sharp go beep searches. But if you don't really limit yourself and you get everything from the whole colorful rainbow of life in there in your blog, then you're going to get all sorts of weird stuff. Agreed. Agreed, totally, yes. Yeah. All right. So, uh, i cite my screen name. So, this person is looking for their screen name for iChat and iSight on Google. Like, they're just using Google as their own personal information repository. Probably a little disappointed when they didn't get anything back. That, that, what I like about that is some searches just sort of tell you what the person is like. You know, they tell you more about the person than they do about the thing that's being searched for the search phrase. It's kind of interesting stuff.
3: Oh wait a minute! All that told you was that that person doesn't know how their computer works, which describes, frankly, most people with computers.
2: Google weirdos is my segment. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 too much color. That was too much color. It was just the wrong kind of color. The color was black. There, Chris. Sorry. You know? Black, like your, like your cold heart, like you were talking about earlier. All right, so we'll move along. Screw standards. You know, and I got to say, this isn't really a weird thing, but sometimes I agree with it. Sometimes standards are a little bit frustrating. That's why I had to personally add variable support to CSS myself using an HTTP handler because I'm I'm not going to wait for it. I'm not going to wait the next 10 years for everything to come through. Although I know I'm not supposed to say that and I'm like a big bad guy for wanting to screw standards, but sometimes you just kind of have to take things into your own hands and, you know, slap that horse on the ass right into the sunset and lay down the law. I don't know what any of that meant, but, you know, it's kind of how I feel about things. Next search is OneNote Activation Key. And all I have to say is I have forwarded your IP address to the Microsoft Special Pirate Interception Task Force. The guys in the black uniforms will be parachuting into your yard pretty soon and flying in through the windows. They'll take you away and nail you. Now, here is an honest-to-God Google weirdo. Picture of Carrot Top in lingerie with a Trojan monkey. Did you hear that, Chris?
3: I'm afraid to speak. (laughs)
2: <laughs> i mean that's horrible that's that's some pretty filthy disgusting stuff
3: well the, uh, the i'm still flabbergasted that all of these searches end up at your site frankly it is a mean, are we like the number one return for for carrot top and his monkey
2: uh, Well, I, I i'm guessing that i'm probably the number one return for a picture of carrot top in lingerie with a trojan monkey because a person who's searching for something like that probably wants the first hit. They want the most relevant search. They want the most carrot top the most lingerie, and the most Trojan monkey. They don't want the second largest amount of any of those ingredients. And Napoleon offers that. You know? We are bounteous in that area. Sounds like Chris is having some technical difficulties there on his end. And so the last Google Weirdos search of the day, and I know it's really sad, you know, but we have to say bye every once in a while. The last Google Weirdos search of the day is draw stick people in Java. And all I have to say is it's fine if you want to draw your stick people in Java if you don't mind having really slow stick people. All right. So that's Google Weirdos for today. And I guess I'm going to hit the button here that Carl usually presses that plays the outro theme. Hang on. Yeah, here in New London we uh we know how to have a good time.
1: So. Dude,
3: I'm totally gonna like quit my job and move to New London <laughs> and beg to be like the second string co host. I mean the, what you guys clearly do not work for a Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, you realize, Chris, that if you come out here and you want to be, you know, like the Donna Rocks guy, that you would probably displace me. Oh. So but that's fine, because I, I could run the Longhorn Dev Center. I don't care. No, I don't think so. Are you so. saying I you think, want to I switch jobs could, like Freaky Friday?
3: I think, we could, um, I think we could pay Jeff, the sound guy, and like tie up Carl and put him in a closet, <laughs> and that would be it.
2: Oh, I'm down with
3: that. All right. Yes. See?
2: <laughs> that's not fair. That's not nice. God. All right, fine, whatever. So all sorts of weird plans to overthrow you know, the show and get Rory and Carl out of the picture and tie everybody up and light things oh, on no, fire.
3: no, we have to keep Rory just for that fun Google Weirdos theme music.
2: Weird stuff. All right, so I guess it's uh, about 40 minutes into the show, and now is the time when we would typically introduce the, uh, the guest. Actually, this is the time when Carl would typically introduce the guest. So I'm going to do it for the very first time here. And uh, hope that I do it all right. So the guest today is a SQL server-minded uh, guru from New Zealand who recently transplanted himself to the magical, beautiful land of Australia, which is about 36 hours flight from any other point on the globe, including itself. And, uh, and his name is Tony Bain. And I don't know if I mentioned that he was an MVP yet because I'm a little nervous. So I'm going to tell you right now, he's an MVP. So this is good stuff. And do we have Tony on the air? You sure do. Hey, Tony. All right. I do believe that the host would typically engage in a little of a little bit of pre-interview banter with the guest. So I think it is my job to ask you, Tony. How's it going?
4: Uh, it's going well. Going well.
2: And and what time is it down there in Australia? Um, it's
4: it's coming up. It's twenty to four. So uh, a wee bit early. But you, you uh, said
2: twenty to four, as in four a.m. Four a.m. Right, so you hear that, listeners. You hear what you did because you had to have your show, and you had to listen to it during your lunch break. Tony here had to stay up all night long, and he's still up. And the sun's just about to come up out there in Australia, and it's it's because of you that Tony has not slept tonight. But that's okay because you are happy to be here, right?
4: I am. I am overjoyed to be here. <laughs> overjoyed. All right. Well,
2: good stuff. So uh, let's start. Let's talk. Let, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, if I recall correctly, you run the Tony Bain Group, is that right, or the Bain Group?
4: Oh, uh, that's right. Um... PlentyBank Group is a company that I've been running for a, for a while, which uh, does a SQL Server-related uh, consulting and training and and bits and pieces. Uh-huh. Um, and we also operate around Asia Pacific, um, mostly Australia and New Zealand, uh, helping people out with their SQL Server issues. And and, and in that, um, we work quite a lot with developers and, and address the, the problems and... Uh, the issues they're in, uh, right. The issues they're in, sure.
2: So when you say Asia Pacific to the geographically challenged, um what does that mean exactly, Asia Pacific?
4: Um I I guess it means uh Asia, Australia and uh, New Zealand.
2: So is that like another way of saying that you get to go do consulting jobs in the tropics?
4: Um it means I travel around quite a bit, yeah.
2: <laughs> and you were up in New Zealand until about uh October, is that right?
4: Yeah, that's right. I I I lived in uh I lived in New Zealand. Um I lived in one part and sort of traveled every day via plane to another part. It was quite interesting. I, I used to, uh, uh, where I lived, I, it was 15 minutes to the airport, and then it was an hour by plane to where I worked. Uh-huh. Um, so I used to get there within sort of an hour and a quarter. But since uh, since moving to Australia, I uh, I don't uh, don't fly as much anymore, but I uh, spend two hours on the motorway. So it's right. been longer getting to work now. Well don't you just
2: have one road in Australia that goes around the entire uh, continent? <laughs>
4: Pretty much. Yeah. So, so
2: in New Zealand, back in New Zealand, were you ever like, uh, were you an extra for Lord of the Rings? Did you have to put hair on your feet and wear the funny, you know, foot slippers that make your feet look really big and wear a cape and stuff? Uh, I, I, I
4: didn't need them, no. Right. Okay. So you are never
2: an extra. You were too busy.
4: All right. Well, that. <laughs> well, that's good. I think stuff. what he was trying to
3: say, Rory, is that he was an extra, but he didn't need the extra hair on his feet. <laughs> so you
2: use your own hair. You didn't use a stunt double bit of hair or anything like that.
4: No, no, that's right. I'm, um. I was an orc.
2: <laughs> well, good stuff. Okay, so uh, why don't we start talking then about what it is that you do for a living and what kind of stuff you're interested in. Um, I understand that you're kind of interested, for example, like, let's just, let's just start from the beginning here, all right? Um, your focus is SQL Server, and you do a bit of talking and a bit of thinking about, like, database design, right? Now, I like to usually start at square one and when I'm trying to understand an idea. So why don't we talk about good database design and, and what your opinions are on good database design?
3: Besides, you know, you should have it. <laughs>
4: right. Yeah, you should, you should have one, yes. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I mean, I talk about the issues that I see people struggling with, and with database design, it's really at a simple level. That you, you need to obviously uh, have a design that's, that meets the, what you're trying to do with that design. And an example is, um, you know, operational, highly normalized databases. So da- databases with lots of tables and lots of relationships. Mm -hmm. Are good for uh, storing and retrieving uh, data from um, transaction processing systems. Okay, but they're not so good for you know retrieving large amounts of data um, for reporting purposes because there's so many tables and joins involved that um, they can perform quite poorly. So you know a a different type of design is usually required to provide good um, you know batch reporting um, than what what is needed for uh, operational
2: systems. So. Sure. Okay, well, I, I hit you with a pretty broad question there, so let's drill down a little bit. Um, a lot of developers are listening. You know, that's pretty much uh, what's going on here. And and being someone who really knows this stuff pretty well, uh, I'm sure that you would love to talk about some of the mistakes that you see, right? Um, I, I wind up working at a lot of shops where the developers do the database design instead of DBAs or instead of people who are, for example, qualified. And uh, what are some of the most common Big blundering mistakes. Like, if, if I'm a developer, I want to start designing databases. What are what are some things that you think I should avoid right off the bat if I'm going to be doing this for myself?
4: Okay, I mean, one of the, the biggest mistakes, I guess, is developers uh, often create tables without primary keys,
5: no. uh, which
4: is uh, it's more common than what you think. Um, in terms of, of database reviews, I do uh, you know do them fairly regularly, and it's it's a very frequent. Uh, sometimes they have some primary keys and some relationships but then they sort of end up with all these sort of surrounding tables which don't have primary keys and relationships tied into anything Um, now
2: you're actually finding a lot of databases out there where the tables have really been designed without any primary keys and they're just treating these like flat files that have been grouped together in one common area
4: Um, sure It's, it's, it's Pretty basic stuff right but it's, yeah. uh, it's it's fairly it's fairly common and um, quite often they, they they intend there to be a primary key, but the, perhaps they they just don't enforce it with constraint
5: oh, okay. so that
4: while they may have a, a something which they think of as the primary key it's just uh, it's not enforced and of course what that can lead to is uh, duplicate rows um, within those right. tables um, and also without the primary key without a unique key, then there's no way of enforcing referential integrity through foreign keys. So then you can end up with uh, uh, data in different tables, which, which is
2: incorrectly linked. Okay, so basically, big mistake number one is that a lot of developers are getting out there and they're designing their tables without primary keys. And if they are putting primary keys in, they are not using constraints to actually enforce. Any sort sure, of so, sure, Okay, well, that's good stuff to uh, know. But, and
4: that, that kind of, I mean, one of the, I guess, fundamental principles of relational databases. Um, there is no order in a table. So one row is not, um, you know, not not the third row in a table, right? there's there's no actual order of rows in, in the table logically. So without a without an enforced constraint, within well, its, um, you know, it isn't conceivably possible to identify uh, an individual row. Um, that if you've got two rows with the same data, then, well, then there's busted. no way to, yeah.
5: there's,
4: there's no way to select. Uh, one particular occurrence of that without without a, a unique key of some form, so it's not a good situation to be in.
2: Yeah, I actually learned about that the hard way in doing some development on my own and uh, just kind of being lazy on a Sunday afternoon and forgetting to actually add any primary keys. And when it comes time to delete your data, and you have anything that's looking you know at all similar, when 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 you have duplicate data there in your in your rows, it gets a little bit tough, you know. <laughs> They don't really sure. want to go deleting your data. Okay, so that's big mistake number one. Do you have another item that you're seeing sure. uh, when you're going around?
3: I'm sure, um, yeah, Chris. I'm sorry. Could I could I just ask uh, just a quick question Chris, about? Chris, you can jump in. you can uh, jump
2: in whenever you want. And, and okay,
3: yeah. Well then, hush, hush. <laughs> all um, right. So, Tony, I have to ask. I mean, I can see where people would build a table without building a primary key at all, right? But how? I mean. Is it the case that people are just writing SQL scripts by hand and forgetting to put the constraints in the primary key? Because any of the design tools I've ever used for designing tables, if I say, this is the primary key, you know, the little dialog box that comes up is by default, you know, items in this, uh, or rows in this column must be unique in the primary key. So people have to actually be checking that checkbox off to turn off the constraint checking.
4: In terms of in terms of um, databases out there running on SQL Server, um, there are I guess there's a several categories or, or, or scales, if you like, and our big projects with um, uh, lots of developers and design teams. Um, I mean this situation is less common, but then there's a, there's a heck of a lot of, of, of one or two developer teams who, who don't use any particular design tool to create tables um, just in an enterprise manager or via SQL scripts. And, you know, it's not thought of as an issue. Now, I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple thing, right? But the reason I bring it up is because it is very, very common to go through um, and, and actually do review the database and find that may, they may have started off with good intentions, but as they just quickly added new tables to do this and the table here to do that, they sort of, you know, left those off or um, not knowing what was the primary key at the time, so they didn't worry about it. And then the, with, you know you generate a database diagram, and there's, there's like five tables that which which sort of sit at the core, which are nicely linked uh, in, in, in a normalized design. And then you've got 150 tables sort of spread across horizontally across the diagram, which just sort of hanging out in the breeze. So <laughs> it's just a...
2: pretty messy. It's a, yeah.
4: I think I think everyone knows, and every time I do the review and say, like, "Well, you should have primary keys on your tables," everyone goes, "Yeah, yeah, we, we know that, but uh, we haven't done it for this reason." So it's uh, it's really uh, an important thing to get on there uh, as soon as you create the table, so that you can ensure that uh, you know your primary keys there working for you, keeping the uh, you know rows uh, unique, so you can always uh, you know, reference a particular row. Now, I mean, there, there may be cases, um, you know, sometimes people say, "Well, if it's just a log table, we just want to shove stuff in there; we don't really care about a primary key." Well, there, there, there may be exceptions, but generally, uh, all tables should have
2: the primary key. I, I like I like the idea though, um, going back uh, of of someone deciding to hand code the script and shunning the tools and saying, ah, that's just for kids. And then just completely botching everything up and, and not getting keys on anything. I like that idea. Um, You know, it's 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 sort sort of like poetic justice, you know, and it keeps you busy, right?
4: It's like
3: the, uh, the SQL server continuing employment act, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Guaranteed employment. Okay. So, so does that basically answer your question, Chris? It does. Thank you. Great. And uh, so, big blundery thing number two. You have, a, you have another thing on the list after primary keys that developers sure. typically do when designing their databases?
4: I guess uh, number two is generally every table should have a clustered index. Right. Um, now, the reason being is if you've got a primary key, then you have an index. Um, the primary key uh, comes with an index, it's a constraint with the, with the index uh, built in, if you like. So that when you create a primary key, you've got at least one index on a table. Now that can be a clustered index or a non-clustered index. And uh, just quickly, the difference between a clustered index is that the the actual rows of the table are logically sorted by the the order of the of the index,
5: hmm. whereas a
4: non-clustered index uh, is is just a separate structure, and the actual rows of the table um, aren't uh, aren't aren't ordered by the non-clustered index. So, but um, the clustered index is is typically the most efficient type of index. So. If you've got at least one index, that one index should be a clustered index. Now, there may be cases we have lots of indexes, and one of those can be the clustered one, and it may not be the primary key. But if the case is your table has just got one index, it should be a clustered index in in most situations.
2: All right, so that's big blunder number two is not using a clustered index. And and the, the real hit for not doing that is probably performance, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at?
4: Yeah, performance. Now, I mean, things that relate to performance only really kick in once we're we're sort of getting over the hundred thousand row table size. Um, but, but it's
2: just generally a good a good guideline, a good design principle. Sure. sure. Okay, great. Sure. And do you have anything else you'd want to add to the list? Like it, things, you know, people like things that come in threes, right?
4: Sure. Well, well, um, I guess the, the 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 third big blunder is uh, people not spending enough time thinking about the the actual data types um, and and nullabilities of columns. So, um, sure. For example, um, I've recently reviewed some some databases which may have tables with uh, 10 million rows in it. And uh, in in a column, they've gone for an int data type when a a tiny int would have been sufficient. Right. Uh, So they've got three extra bytes in a column. Um, So over 10 million rows, um, I think it works out to about 30 30 meg of space consumed in that table, which which doesn't need to be. And obviously that has um, impact in terms of how many rows uh, fits within a page in the SQL Server and how many rows can be retrieved in, in, in per IO request. So it's, it has ongoing effects in terms of performance. Um so, so yeah, spending spend more time thinking about the actual size of the columns, what type of data is going to be stored in there, um, bearing in mind that if, if, if situations change we can always expand data types uh, sure. much more easily than you can. Uh, and you can
2: uh, restrict them. Yeah, and I mean the implications are kind of all across the board anyway because when I was first getting started, you know, I'll admit I was guilty of this, I created a, uh, a oh, first of all, do you like to say varkar or varchar? What do they say on that side of the universe down there in Australia? Well,
4: uh, I'd say varchar,
2: but... I say varchar too, so we can agree on that. You eat Vegemite. <laughs> do you, wait, do you eat Vegemite?
4: You... Uh, we eat Vegemite, yeah.
2: Okay, you eat Vegemite. Okay, I can't agree with that, but I'll agree with you on the pronunciation of varchar. <laughs> So one thing I was guilty of doing when I started out was I created um, a date column and I used Varchar as the type. And maybe this is me just kind of like trying to cleanse, you know, trying to get this off my chest, kind of trying to unload this burden that I've been carrying around for a long time. And I learned the very hard way why it's important to select your data types carefully and and do it intelligently. I mean, I don't know if you ever tried to search a Varchar column like that. It's not so much fun, but, uh, yeah, yeah so. no,
4: and, and especially for things like, uh, you know, globalization, uh, you know, storing a date in a Varchar column, it's not going to do any of the reformatting sure. and, and that's necessary. So it's, it's, yeah.
2: Well, it's, it's not beat not around the bush. Idea. I mean, it was just stupid. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was not a good <laughs> choice. It was a foolish thing for me to have done. And uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one on earth who's done it. In fact, I know I'm not because I've encountered other databases where people have done similar things. So big blunder number three then is not properly, well, not really thinking about your data types and the way that you're creating them and, and, and your columns. So sure. that's a good deal. All right, so that's that's three good items right there. So, so me, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. At the,
3: at the interest of, of um, putting all programmers and consultants around the world out of work with tools, oh, no. which, which is my continuing interest because I'm just too lazy to do anything more than once, have you ever, is there any tool out there, like, are you familiar with FX Cop that will, like, check your .NET classes against a set of rules? Oh, huh. Sure, sure. Sure. Are there anything, is there, a, like, an SQL cop that can, like, check for primary keys and and tell you, hey, none of your data needs to be int in this column. Why don't you make it tiny and you'll save 30 megabytes? Or, hey, watch the, the searches and say, gosh, you're searching a lot on var car. Why don't you make it, you know, car or wh- whatever? I mean, are there any tools out there that can look at your tables and and look at your usage and make recommendations on changes you could make to tune things?
4: Um, there may, may very well be, but certainly not uh, any that I know of that are in uh, widespread use. That sounds like magic there, there you are, could bottle and of, sell. <laughs> there are a bunch of tool vendors popping up, but uh, no, no, I don't know of any, any sort of uh, major tool out there. That well, Tony,
3: that, that idea is yours. It's just you, me, and Rory here. No one else is listening. <laughs> you know, that one's secret Don't, if you want it. You That's know, what I just was it.
4: just thinking.
2: How many million-dollar ideas are given away on this show each week? I mean, that was uh, that was pretty good, assuming it could really be done well.
4: I, really. I imagine there, there, there someone may have. There are a bunch of uh, tool developers out there who are coming up with some of these nifty tools for SQL Server. So um, um, there may be one of those out there who have done that. So perhaps they hmm. could... Uh, 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 Post a a link or something uh, after the
2: show. So so how can how can DBAs help out? Like where all this stuff is going on. I mean, what 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 should be going on here? What what should DBAs be doing? I mean, they should be DBAing, right?
3: Yeah, that's the the job of a DBA is not to help.
2: (laughs) The job of a DBA is to is to hang the red tape, right? Yeah, the job Uh of the DBA
3: is to say, hey, you're you're not allowed to touch this data (laughs) in that way.
4: be, and, it, and it used to be pleasant that way. Didn't it? The DBA was <laughs> the feared one. It would sit in the corner and any time anyone came to talk to them out the database, they would turn around and make an angry face and chop one of on your leave. fingers <laughs> off. <Yeah. laughs> the good old but days. It's not, huh? it, 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 no, it's not like that anymore. DBAs are now now uh, uh, skilled in the art of customer service and uh, <laughs> and uh, are measured on on their you know performance levels and meeting. User requirements, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a tough and,
2: world for them now. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it is, it is. So, so the role of the DBA um, is is more, I guess, for the develop consultative role. Um, I know a lot, uh, you know, develop some some developers uh, um, you know, like to develop in isolation, but it really the people who sort of understand, I guess, the production issues of development. Um, for SQL Server are the DBAs, so hmm. um, there's certainly a good place to start in terms of building some knowledge about the things you have to worry about, such as, um, you know, when when you're developing code in, 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 I guess, your development environment, you're not really thinking about the types of things which may happen in production, such sure. as what happens if, if the server fails, what happens if, um, you know, if, if you're... Uh, for, for if, if, if a lot of other users. Yeah, five other users uh, doing something else at the same time. So um, you know, it's, it's their, their their role has sort of changed more into um, um, sort of.
2: They're not just a, data a, a cops re- anymore, right?
4: Yeah, no, they're, they're more of a, a of a, re- a review process for things going through into the I guess the uh, the production environments, and and and, and m- most of the DBAs I know also sort of provide um sort of a second level assistance now to developers in terms of of, of helping them with their, their SQL, helping them with optimization okay. and, and and design issues.
2: Cool. So I hate to interrupt, but first of all, Chris, you have yeah. to remember this. I'm telling you something, you gotta remember it, okay? Okay. System dot Rory dot <laughs> You'll understand later on. And uh and the other thing I wanted to say is that in some of the uh, comments we're getting from listeners right now, Chris James says that Microsoft has a best practices analyzer tool that you can run against SQL Server databases. Really? So maybe it's just buried deep, 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 capital D deep in uh, in some website somewhere and we can does find he it provide me. a
3: link or something.
2: He does not. Hey, Chris, if you're out there and you're still listening, if you could do our dirty work for us and find that link and, uh, submit it back to us through the Donna rock suggestion thing. Um, or through the uh, comments I think it's
4: available yeah. from Microsoft.com slash SQL. Best, oh, um, okay. Best practice analyzer is, 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 a, is, a very good tool. Actually. Um, uh, it probably, I, I think it does actually address some of those design issues. It's not specifically a design review tool, it's a, it's a tool you sort of point at a SQL server and it'll go off and it'll check sort of um, a bit of everything, look at the server config or look at, uh, um, you know, the, the the security, I think, and it looks at some of the design issues. So it's a, it's a general um, best practice tool for SQL server, so it may do some of those, those design issues as well. Okay.
2: All right. Well, that's good stuff. So we're hitting the one-hour mark, which means that now is a time when we're going to have to play... Uh... A word from our sponsor and a couple songs. So why don't you guys just hang out and I'm going to get the music started and you can get up and stretch a little bit. Um, you've probably got just a few minutes here. So keep an eye or keep an ear on what's happening. Once the music stops, we'll be back on the air. Is that okay, guys? Yeah. Great. So we'll be right back.
6: Hey, Carl Franklin here giving a shout out to my friends at Data Dynamics. Uh, we've talked a lot about Active Reports on this show, and this is no exception. So, I'm talking about ActiveReports.net. This is a port of their popular Active Reports program. If you're currently thinking of doing reporting in .net for Windows forms or web applications, check out Active Reports for.net. Uh, many of my friends in the business use and swear by ActiveReports.net. I use it as well. Let me just tell you to say that the reporting is simple, does it in injustice because it makes you think that it can only do simple things. It can do very powerful things, but you don't have to go through hoops just to set up a simple report. When you create a report, the report exists with your application, okay? It doesn't exist on a server somewhere. All right, we're not talking about enterprise reporting, we're talking about I have some data, I want to print it out, or I want to show it to the user pdf format is supported html format is supported all the great features you'd expect from a reporting engine drop dead simple and the best part it's not going to break the bank they have a great licensing scheme that's easy to deal with so check it out at www.datadynamics.com now let's get back to our show
1: shows Times are better, there I'm told, cause I got them deep rivers. Now let it rain, let it pour, let it rain a whole lot more, cause I got them deep river blues. Just let that rain drive right on, let the waves sweep along. sinks with me, I will go down, don't you see, cause I got them deep river blues, and now I'm gonna say goodbye, and if I sink, just let me die, cause I got them deep river blues, so let it rain, let it pour.
2: So we're back. Um, got the uh, sponsor word in there and a couple songs from Carl and I, like we usually like to do. And I got to say, I learned during the break that uh, that my armpits have been sweating a whole lot more than they usually do when I'm just co-hosting. So uh, Chris, you there? Um, uh, what did you do during the break that made this <laughs> obvious to you? Um, I just, I, I was just walking around and I noticed a distinct clammy sensation in the general area of the armpits how are your how are your pits they're probably nice and dry because you know you talk in front of people all the time and for you it's no big deal and you're the co-host and i know from experience that co-hosting leaves your armpits not quite as sweaty
3: actually i am a little sweaty but only because i'm hot not because i'm nervous okay
2: all right tony how how about you how are you doing in the pits
4: Uh, pretty dry over over the side
2: okay all right well that's good now everybody knows nice good high quality technical Um, content there
4: I'm glad SQL Server is making, making Chris Huff. So. <laughs> all hot and bothered. In fact, I'm so hot and bothered that I
3: went and found that FX cop for SQL Server thing and uh, and posted it uh, on my blog on salesbrothers.com. So you can just go and download it now and, and put yourself out of work if you like, don't
2: you? <laughs> I'd also like to say that Carl out in Indiana, him and all his students, he says their pits are dry out there. So we basically covered all our bases. We know the general... Moisture level of everybody's armpits now. So, you guys probably move on with the show. So, during the first pre ad spot portion of the show, we talked a bit about some of the things that developers do wrong, some of the mistakes they make, and how DBAs can help in that area. So, right now, why don't we talk about something that's kind of sexy, right? Let's talk about like the bling bling of the SQL Server world, which right now uh, is Yukon. Is so, let's talk first about um, what impact you think Yukon uh, is going to have.
4: For me, uh, UConn is is about enabling SQL Server to do uh, perform new roles um, that it's currently not performing. I think with SQL Server 2000, uh, the the sort of current set of functionality of, of the relational database is fairly good. I mean, right. everyone is is who's using SQL Server 2000 uh, is not sort of struggling or crying out for, for a, <laughs> a, a, a bug yeah. fix or, 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 or an enhancement to, to that uh, for the particular set of functionality that it has. It's, it does
2: it's, its job as a relational database well,
4: basically. It does its yeah. job as a relational database, and, uh, and it does that very well. I mean, uh, I think uh, 2000 was, uh, was almost 12 months um, before the first Service Pack came out. And I have clients sort of running it on in production on Beta 2. So it's always it's had a history of being uh, very re- reliable and very solid. It's
2: been great. So, so what is Yukon going to add to the mix, and, and how is that going to change the universe?
3: Hopefully um, it won't uh, affect it's... the whole cool reliability thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Chris just said uh, he hopes it doesn't violate the whole reliability
4: thing. but Sure. It, it seems that uh, the are putting effort into getting it right. has not being uh, shipped out the door. Before it's ready. Well, the main, I guess, uh, the, the main topic of relevance for, for this audience is, of course, the, uh, the inclusion of the .NET runtime sure. uh, within SQL Server. Okay? Yeah. So that's um, uh, traditionally when, when developers were forced to write all their uh, stored procedures and functions in uh, T-SQL, they now have the option of uh, creating um, code which runs within SQL Server in the .NET language,
2: sure. And and what do you think about that? Because I've talked to a lot of different people, and we all talk about how cool it sounds, you know, like in theory. But in in reality, how widely applicable is this going to be? Is it going to be good for any place where we're using a, a store procedure in the past, or is this going to be something we're going to want to use just for certain specific niche purposes? I, I mean, sure. at least right off the bat, this is this is the first release with an embedded CLR. So sure,
4: sure. Um, my role is, is I guess, you, I'm almost 50% developer and 50% DBA, so half of me says, hey, this is really, really cool, and the other half of me is saying, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's something people are going to have to learn how to use, and sure. it's certainly, I don't think, going to replace T-SQL. T-SQL, I think, will remain a, a the dominant way in which we query uh, uh, the relationship data, so our SQL statements and some T-SQL for um, You know the procedural uh part of those. Okay. Uh, you know, p- constructing the logic around that. What particular SQL statements we issue, and the way I see the, the .NET code being involved is to push some of that. I guess the data-centric logic, such as uh specific functions or or routines that operate on that data that aren't ne- needed in the application level down into the database engine. Such as if you have have maybe have a a a, a, a function or or a a procedure which uses a lot of data and outputs a uh, particular, um, you know, a much smaller result. So it consumes many rows and outputs a, 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 a you know, a small smaller result set because it's processed that data. Um, well, then it may be a good opportunity to sort of save on network bandwidth, reduce sort of the lag time between machines by pushing some of that logic within to the database engine and then allowing it to... Uh, operate on all that larger amount of data natively and then only passing the sort of the process results um, across the wire to the client machine.
2: Okay, so in, in a way it's going to help us cut down on round trips.
4: That, that's right. It's, 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 it allows us to centralize sort of data centric processing within the, in the database. So stuff which is, uh, you know, hitting the database heavily uh, can be pushed right back and actually into the database.
3: Hmm, okay, well, but we do that today now already, right? With with T SQL and stored stored procs, how is the .NET stuff really going to be different?
4: Um, we we do it with T SQL and stored procs, but T SQL is not the language of choice for application developers. People who have experience with C sharp uh, can can much you know much easier sort of crank out uh, sort of C sharp code to do what they want rather than write it, you know having to write that. Sort of same sort of procedural logic within T-SQL, and and and, and of course the um, code within uh, .NET is, is is compiled as well. So.
2: Sure. Um, right. And and what are some of the performance implications? I mean, this isn't something we're going to just want to dive into, you know, Harry Carey just all over the place dropping uh, .NET code all, all over the place, are we? I mean, this is something we're going to have to think about at least right off the bat. I'm guessing.
4: Sure. And and I guess we're we're, um, we're probably not at that point yet um, with the I guess we're not at public beta yet with it, so that the actual um performance numbers um you know they haven't been crunched if you like, so um there are you know there's obviously going to be performance impacts um, some good some bad um mm-hmm. you know and weighing up the 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 sort of the benefits against the disadvantages that's the that's the sort of the d b a side of me which is sort of as the reservations, is there's going to be, a, I guess, a teething period when people are getting used to what works well and, and, and what what's probably less, best left as a T-SQL still procedures.
5: Okay. I love the idea
4: of
3: developers around the world kind of gnawing on the SQL Server Yukon <laughs> box when they get it.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I know that my first instinct when I heard about this was, oh, well, I'm just going to stop coding in T-SQL. I'm just going to start dropping... Uh, little C-sharp store procedures all over the place, but obviously that's not going to be the best idea right off the bat.
3: Well, well I assume that there are, just like any languages, right, there there are things that are better suited to .NET, which sure. is why the Yukon team has decided to do this work at all. Right. But I'm sure that there are things that are still better suited to T-SQL. Tony, do you have a sense of what those things might be?
4: I, I guess uh, if if you're not doing a lot of, you know, non database computation such as if you're selecting data from here, updating it here, deleting something here, well then that's that's essentially a bunch of just SQL statements, right? So you can embed those in a, in a standard T SQL stored procedure with a bit of procedural logic, but you're not actually you're not actually going to benefit from putting that same logic in C sharp because it's not doing a lot of work other than um, than the actual SQL statements, right? And the SQL statements, you still, when you when you write it in in, in C Sharp, you still use SQL statements to actually go off and hit the database and and update things, right? Really? Okay. So 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 you're just sort of um, moving the sort of the procedural surrounds from T SQL to C Sharp, which you, is is going to buy you very little. However, if you're doing things like uh, I guess the the common example is sort of string matching, uh, regular expressions. Well, that sort of thing is very, very difficult to do in CSQL today. Right. Languages such as uh, VB.NET is much easier and much more powerful. So I guess it's that interpretation, computation that there aren't native SQL functions for. You may benefit from doing that within a .NET uh, procedure or function.
2: Okay. And, uh, so going even a little bit further, you are, uh, You're working on a Yukon book right now, aren't you? Can you talk about that at all? Or is that sort of off limits?
4: I'm I'm working on a book uh, which is due out in July to sort of coincide around the time that uh, the public leader's out. Um, That's called uh, Yukon Revealed from Uh A-Press, and and that's kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's DBA focused to prepare people for... SQL Server when it comes out um, in full release. So it's not a, a end-to-end book. It's more about um, taking people who are familiar with SQL Server today, sort of teaching them what's coming in UConn, and actually getting how to get them prepared so that when the release version comes out, they can know which parts of .NET they have to come familiar with. Because bearing in mind that um, for developers, it, it may be a natural progression, but for DBAs, right. Uh, you know, they're going to have to become familiar with, uh, things like, uh, you know, the .NET framework to actually start to understand these new things which are happening inside their database engine. So it's kind of a a large learning curve for DBAs. So, uh, well,
2: sure. I mean, we, we were talking before the break about how they didn't even really have to make use of the A in the acronym, right? They didn't really even have to administer anything. They just sort of stood there and said, tell to the hand. And then uh, we dropped all this responsibility on them. And now this too. I mean, this is coming. Yeah. On. We, we've talked about how Yukon is going to benefit the .NET developer. But you're writing this book for DBA, so can you talk about some of the features that are going to make life better or easier just from the pure SQL point of view? Are there going to be any changes, or are we basically just getting like a SQL Server 2000 with a .NET CLR in it?
4: So that's sort of one of the killer features. But of course, with every release, there's new enhancements, there's new T-SQL commands. Um, I think a lot of effort has been put into bringing the syntax of everything into a common standard. Uh-huh. And in line with, with these uh, SQL standards, so there's been a lot of change on the, I guess, the standard feature set and, and improvement and inclusion of the new sort of SQL standards. I mean, as, as you may know, SQL is um, sort of driven by the anti SQL standards, right? And they're the, the changing, and the next version will obviously have some of those new uh, anti SQL standard commands, etc. And within within the SQL command set.
2: So uh, it's time for the Linux vulnerability of the week. <laughs>
4: Mr. lets you and me fight.
5: <laughs>
2: okay, and I have to explain a little bit about what this is. This is this is Carl's invention, and it's a good idea. The idea here is that Linux is not, you know, bad. It's not better than Windows. Windows is not necessarily bad or better than Linux in terms of security, right? Everybody has holes. Everybody makes mistakes. So this week, because it's sort of a weird show and it's sort of a weird time and Carl's away in Indiana, and uh, and and the air is just a little bit different around here. I'm going to do a slightly different thing for Linux Vulnerability of the Week. Instead of naming an actual vulnerability, this week I want to talk about something else, okay? This week's Linux Vulnerability is not in your code. It's not a missing semicolon that brings down the whole system, right? It's not a, It's not a compiling issue. It's not a versioning problem. It's not a stack overflow or whatever that mumbo-jumbo is, all right? This week... The Linux vulnerability—it's—it's it's in your heart, okay. It's in your heart, okay. This—I've been—I've been following this guy, Christopher Anthony, who's been uh, kind of picking on Carl and I a little bit uh, for the past few weeks um, about how we support Microsoft and about how we really like Microsoft and this and that. And we wound up getting into some pretty heated arguments. You probably heard us talking about him either here or on our blogs. And uh, in the course of the arguments, I kind of learned how little Christopher really knew. About Microsoft and about Microsoft Windows, Um, from the company point of view, of course, you know he thinks that Microsoft is this big evil horrible thing. Um, Although he seems to
3: put, of course, in the middle of that sentence.
2: (laughs) Well, that's that's what all the open source. Well, that's what a lot of the open source. Well, that's what the really vocal kind of pesky open source people think. All right, Um, and and they're always you know big for Sun. They talk about how great Sun is, or or this or that, anything but Microsoft. You know, and they totally ignore the fact that Bill Gates has $24 billion slated for charity and is kind of taking world health into his own hands. But that's another issue. We're not going to bring that up here. Um, so I learned how little he really, really knew about Microsoft. And he still wanted to argue about it. He still wanted to argue against it and kind of talk a bit of smack and talk about how Windows was such a bad operating system and about how coding for Windows is, is you know, like back in the stone ages and, and this and that. He was actually just listening to the show to get mono information. He wanted to learn a little bit, little bit about mono. And so as the conversation continued, you know, I was honest with him. I said, look, Chris, you know, you're hurting your side here. You're coming out. You're speaking against Microsoft and you're speaking against Windows. You're speaking for open source and for Linux. But the problem is, you know, so little about Microsoft and you say so many things that are just patently false and wrong that you're damaging your own credibility. I said, what you need to do is you need to get out there and learn a little bit about Microsoft products, about Windows and this and that. And he kind of took me up on it. And uh, he's been going through for the past few days, and he's installed Windows XP. He got himself a copy of Visual Studio.net, and he's experiencing Windows sort of for the first time. Not so much as a collection of rumors and whispers and negative comments in IRC channels around the world, um, hearing things from his friends. For example, one thing he had heard from a friend was uh, was that Windows Media Player didn't play MP3s, right? Like, Microsoft would be that stupid and not support the most popular compressed audio format in the universe right now. Um, just a lot of really bad information like that. So in a way, the vulnerability here was that he wasn't willing to actually get side, get outside of his camp and take a look at what was going on on the other side of the fence, right? And just like security issues, I think that's sort of a problem for developers everywhere or for you know advocates of any given technology anywhere. So when I talk about Linux and, and I say the occasional bad thing, I'm talking from the point of view of someone who's actually worked with it and actually done a bit of coding on it and actually installed it and run different distros. And, and I actually even wrote a textbook on it at one point. You know, I've sort of, I've sort of been there. And, uh, and I think it strengthens the argument. So the Linux vulnerability of the week then is not looking on the other side of the fence, even when you want to talk about it. And that's something that I encounter, unfortunately, a lot in people who are attacking Microsoft and trying to promote Linux. Sort of makes everything look kind of bad. Linux vulnerability, I suppose, there's probably like some nice ancient Greek tragic term for it than is that sort of weakness. So, that... so you were kind
3: of like the, you know, the, the wise older statesman kind of reaching across the political divide over to the enemy camp and putting your arm around Chris and saying, listen, Chris, you can have your own opinion, but you really need to have all the information first.
2: Right. That's exactly what it was. You know, if he comes out the other end and he has nothing to say except, oh, Windows stinks and I can't stand Visual Studio.net, then at least he has some experience. At least he has something on which to base that. Although, fortunately, if you read his blog, chrisanth.blogspot.com, it doesn't look like it's turning out that way. He still talks a bit of trash, you know, and he still calls everybody names and everything, but that's kind of going, going on on both sides of the fence. He's still pushing along and he's still giving all this stuff a try, so he'll come out the other end at least informed. With experience, and it's a pretty cool thing. He's getting a lot of help from a lot of Microsoft people, not people from Microsoft necessarily, but people in the in the community who are very familiar with .NET and very familiar with what's going on. So it's it's a good way to start. And reading his blog is an interesting way to see Windows for the first time through the eyes of someone who has never used it, really, but has talked a lot about it. So that is the Linux vulnerability of the week. Little different, not not the usual stuff, but uh, neither is this show today.
4: let
5: lets
2: you and me fight. <laughs> okay, so, Tony, you still there? Sure. Great, so let, let's get back to SQL Server then. Let's bring it kind of full circle. We talked about Yukon. Uh, we talked a bit about your book. Um, you want to you wanna get a little more technical here for a minute and give us some tips on maybe other optimizations that people can uh, make use of? For their sure, server and, I, I
4: guess I guess performance optimization is the topic uh, that that most people are concerned with. Right. Um, I guess the, the key point is no magic button. Uh, I've often seen uh, uh, developers come with like thirteen hundred line SQL statements. <laughs> and say, it's, it's slow. Can you fix the server? <laughs>
2: yeah, what's wrong and, with it? <laughs> uh,
4: we, we, you know, we'll, we'll just change that Go slow setting to uh, go a bit <laughs> faster. <laughs> yeah.
5: um,
4: I, I guess in terms of percentages. From my experience, I guess there's about a five percent change in performance possible if you tinker with server settings. All right, so you may you may be able to uh, change the configuration, um, perhaps change a bit of some of the sizing, change some of the database options. You may be able to get a five percent change by doing that. Okay, so that's really what you know you can get from the server. You may get up to say a fifty percent. performance improvement by perhaps changing the hardware. And that, that's assuming that you've got reasonable hardware to start with. Sure. Um, and you may get some performance by adding more memory, more CPU, more disk. But the key thing there, by adding hardware to fix the performance problem, typically if it's uh, a bottleneck relating to data size, well then over time that bottleneck will reappear and you'll be getting into the cycle of adding more hardware, adding more hardware to keep <laughs> right. sort of, the, the performance at a level which is acceptable.
2: The Sun solution. Yeah, and, and, it's running Java, throw more hardware at it. Yeah,
4: yeah that's right. And um, I guess the sort of the 10,000%, the N% performance improvement comes from understanding the, the, the logic that you're doing, the queries that you're doing, and, and reworking to your SQL. And I'm not saying that you can always get that level of performance improvement, but um, in terms of the, the relative scales of what you can achieve, there's uh, significantly more performance to be gained by Reworking your SQL, reoptimizing, um, you know, looking at uh, at sort of the way the SQL has been processed, looking at indexes, looking at the amount of data that you're operating on compared with, say, changing server settings. So it's just just trying to give a bit of perspective of what where's best to spend the time.
2: Sure. So like cutting down your store procedures to twelve hundred lines, for example.
4: <laughs> That's right. Well. I mean, it really comes from understanding what's going on, um, what SQL Server does when you submit a batch uh, for its process. And um, I mean, SQL Server is, is like is a cost-based optimizer. So when you submit a, a SQL statement, um, it goes through this process called called optimization, which is really a set of rules which are built into the database engine, which goes through and evaluates different strategies for processing that query. Um, now, with cost-based optimization, that it does this by running these rules and assigning associated costs with every step that it would need to do in, in a particular plan. Now, then, for, for complex queries, uh, um, there may be thousands of different ways of actually processing the query. So things that it takes into consideration are what indexes to use, what tables to look at, um, how, to do, how to join tables together, what to do first, what order to do things, um, when to sort things, uh, when to, uh, you know, Join things together, and each each combination of these things is called a plan. and And the optimizer will go through and assign a cost, and then uh, choose the plan with the sort of least associated cost. Okay. So the optimizer is not always perfect, though, because with very complex queries, there may be thousands of different combinations. For, so for it to so for it to actually go and look at all those different combinations, it could take longer than actually to run the query itself. So it uses, I guess set of rules, the, the IP of the database engine, to sort of whittle down to a pretty good plan as quickly as it can. So it sort of uses uh, these rules to say, well, you know, I think this type of query uh, plan is going to be good enough. And that's how it selects uh, what it okay. with.
2: And what about some other optimization steps that can be taken? Like, uh, what about set no count, for example?
4: Sure. Um well, I guess there's, there's a, there's a whole, whole bunch of things and set no count is one of them which, which really impacts the, uh, sort of the, network, uh, the network bandwidth, right? It's it's, relative, it's relevant if you've got lots of statements within a store procedure which send back uh, the number of rows returned to the client. If you've got lots of statements in store procedure, setting no count on suppresses that, um, row, that, that number of rows uh, retrieved message from going back to the client. And, and causing a network round trip. Now, it doesn't sound a lot, but if you've got perhaps a large batch which is processing um, you know, many thousands of statements in a loop or something, it can be quite significant. I think I did a demonstration somewhere where I showed... Uh, uh, I, had a, I had a piece of code which fires off as many batches as possible um, on like 100 threads concurrently to, to a server, and then measures the number of, of batches that it could do within a sort of like 30 seconds. And by having set no count on, uh, it could, um, it could do about 3,000. By turning that off, it could do, I think, 7 to 10,000. So that extra network load was quite significant for when yeah. we you have a large number of, uh, you know, for things like a website, we have a large number of, uh, uh perhaps concurrent hits and, and consuming the network bandwidth. Um, other things to think about, as in, in your select lists, okay? Sure. People quite often do select star. But right.
5: Select star,
4: not, select star is bad for a few reasons, but the, the, the main reason why it's not so good is because so select star means to get all the columns, obviously, which means that um, pretty much the, the, the either the base table or the, the cluster index has to be uh, looked at to get all the column values. Now, if you actually revise that and only select the relevant columns that you need, SQL Server may be able to get the data from perhaps an index without actually touching the base table. So by just, just by reducing the column lists down to the actual columns you need, you can avoid um, steps within the query plan, which you may not even be aware of that occurring.
2: Hmm. So just by doing that, basically... Huh.
4: Just by doing that, you can get performance benefits straight away. Okay, if you've got select star everywhere and you're bringing back 50 columns <laughs> when you only need two. You know, if your store procedure just,
2: is just 1,300 lines of select star, for example.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's not just a bandwidth issue. It's an actually a way in which that query is processed. Right. is is affected by the fact that, you, that by saying, give me every column, the SQL server may have to look somewhere else to get that data then what it needs to where it needs to look. If you're only getting perhaps two columns, so.
2: sure, there's fine tuning to be done everywhere along the way, basically in reducing network uh, chitter chatter um, and ensuring that you know the processing isn't going to be too heavy duty. Just kind of cool. whittling away every place you possibly can. So, uh, what about like connection pooling?
4: Um, connection pooling is is good, I guess for. Uh, 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 Middle tier um, type environments where you have uh, a common user um, which is continuously submitting and uh, submitting an, uh, connection requests. Um, I guess connection pooling is important to note that it's a client side process. SQL Server doesn't know anything about connection pooling.
5: Okay. All it knows
4: about is the connections that have, it has open to it, whether they're in a connection pool or not, it doesn't know about. So it's completely hmm. a client side process, right? Okay. Now, but it is particularly relevant for when you have large number of connection requests. Um, if I mentioned that, that that demo I did with this code, which fires off as many requests and, as possible within a time frame, yeah. um, with connection pooling, with that off, I, for one particular example, I was, I was able to submit sort of 3,000 requests to SQL Server. Um, each time, it would open a new connection. Um, so which involves network round trip. So it's got a handshake, it's got to authenticate, and then it's got to establish a connection. So so for with connection pulling off, we could do 3,000. But by turning connection pulling on, we were able to do something like 48,000 uh, uh, requests oh, wow. within that same uh, period. It's just because the fact that it doesn't have to do all this extra work. Um, obviously, this is a, a sort of an insulated example, but it's that scale of uh, of, of of performance impact, which is possible by having the connections in the pool, um, especially when you have a large number of, uh, of those kind of sort of client requests occurring uh, very frequently.
2: Sure. Okay. So uh, that's good stuff. So early on in the show, we talked about a lot of the big mistakes that developers make when designing their own databases and their own tables and things. Um, so let's bring it back to the developers. Um, what are some things that develop, that you find developers kind of struggle with? Right, people coming from procedural languages like C Sharp and VBNet, when they're kind of coming over to the SQL side of the world, what are the, some of the things they have a really hard time with?
4: Well the, well, the biggest issue is that people see SQL Server as this black box which sort of goes off and does the stuff, and they don't really know isn't what's that, going on. Isn't they what it does? So they, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they, they have a stored procedure, and they, they may execute it, and it may take uh, uh, so, so it takes 60 seconds to execute. And they have to optimize it, and they don't really know where to start. Right. They say they, all they know is, well, they, they, they asked it to run. It took 60 seconds, and then they got the result back. So they sort of open it up and go through statement by statement, just sort of changing stuff, trying to make it faster. Right. And I guess the key message I always tell developers when, when we first start talking about SQL Server is it's, it's by no means the sort of Black box, which, which, which doesn't tell you what's going on. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Everything which sort of happens in SQL Server, you can see very easily and actually pinpoint very very quickly where where time and effort is going within a batch of SQL statements.
2: Well, so so how do we how do we get in there and actually see that? I mean, what do we do, really? Okay.
4: Well, the, the easiest way is, is within Query Analyzer. You turn on Show Execution Plan. Uh-huh. Uh huh. When you turn on Show Execution Plan and execute a query. Okay, you'll get the, the, the query will run, you'll get the result, um, but also down the bottom, you'll get an execution plan pane. If you flick to that, you will see a graphical representation of all the steps that SQL Server has taken to actually take your uh, request and execute it and retrieve the result.
2: And, and so, d- what, what does, it, does it look like a flowchart or sort of like a tree view? or? Uh... It,
4: yeah, I guess it's like a, a tree of not only the queries that are executed, but the individual steps that it took or individual tasks that it did per query, sort of internally, to actually process the query. So it says, okay. well, I had to look at this index, and then I had to do this type of join type to this index, to then I joined the result together, then I grouped it, and then I spat it out <laughs> right. to you. So, but- so you get a, a tree view of what's going on, but the most important thing that you get there is is the cost stamps Sure. Okay? So if, if I've got a store procedure which may have, uh, 15 SQL statements, in, and I execute that, and it takes 60 seconds. Just by looking at the execution plan, I get a relative cost of every SQL statement within that within that stored procedure. So I can see straight away, hey, this this my sixth SQL statement, for example, is taking 95% of the cost of that of that execution. Okay. So right. straight away, I know that well. If I'm optimizing this, I only need to look at this statement. If I can optimize that, I've got potentially 95 percent of the current cost or the current, um, um, you know, cost gain. So right away, instead of scrolling through the SQL code, just changing stuff and hoping that it's going to get faster, I know exactly which statement to look at. Sure. I, I think
2: that, I think that's actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
4: Oh, sorry. sorry. No,
2: you go. Well, I was just going to say that I think that's a common thing for developers to do, right? They try to optimize without even testing where the bottlenecks might be in the code. Sure. It, it happens it, all the it, time. It's extremely
4: yeah. common. Extremely yeah. common. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just not obvious straight away that, sure. that this information is available. It's, it's right there, and it's very easy to get.
0: Mm-hmm. So not only
4: do I get which query to look at, but the execution plan for each task with inside that query, it has associated cost to that. So I find out query six taking 95% of the cost, I can also see that, that the lookup on this particular table is taking perhaps 70% of the cost of that. Hmm. So not only do I know which query to look at, I know which particular part of the query to look at to uh, optimize it to reduce that costing down. So it's very, very simple, but it's, it's probably the, the biggest uh, unnecessary time waster is that people sort of sit there and sort of change things and try and optimize sort of SQL like in the dark almost. Well,
2: it's almost like like superstition. It's almost like doing a rain dance and hoping that there's actually going to be a change, right? Sure. Okay, so one of the keys then to, to optimizing and to being a good SQL developer is knowing how to use the tools to really isolate where the bottlenecks are so that you can whack appropriately instead of just whacking here, whacking there, and possibly even in the process introducing further complications and further bottlenecks because you didn't know what you were doing, right? Sure.
4: Okay. That's right. I mean, the execution plans are, are complex and that they show you the Exact detail what SQL Server is doing, so sure. you can ignore that if you like, and just look at the percentages. And at least you've got a fairly precise point at where to start. Yeah, you don't need to understand exactly what's going on. If you just look at the percentages, you can say, okay, it's this one. Huh?
2: Yeah, it's a big You're, red flashing whack me sign. <laughs> yeah.
4: Okay, sure, and so.
2: so 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 speaking of uh, of doing things kind of in the dark, um, when I'm writing store procedures and I'm getting them out there and I want to test them, like how do, how do I debug these things? What am I supposed to be doing?
4: Okay, um, I guess another sort of fairly unknown part of the Query Analyzer is that there is a stored procedure debugger um, built into Query Analyzer for SQL Server 2000. Um, so if you want to step through your stored procedure, um, within the Query Analyzer there's a, a tree view pane. Um, you can hit your face if it's not there and it'll pop up. And you can drill down your stored procedure and right-click it and, and go debug. Sure. And that'll allow you to put in some parameters. You can also roll it back. So that you can run through your stored procedure, but if you don't want to change the data when it's finished, it'll roll back the data changes that were executed, oh. so you won't muck up your database. And you can actually step through, sort of statement by statement, through that stored procedure to actually debug it. Now, that, that's been there in, in 2000 since release, but surprisingly few developers actually make right. use of the stored procedure debugger.
2: Well, I think we're all sort of used to the idea of just randomly, you know, strewing stored oh. procedures all over the place and running them and just hoping that they're going to actually do something. Right. So then to kind of mix, it, mix this all together, what would be the process? Say, uh, I've just written a stored procedure that's going to go in and grab some customer data and bring it back. How do I get that into this execution plan uh, uh, profiler thing that's going to show me where my bottlenecks are? What do I do? Do I drag it onto something, or do I just simply go up, like you said, to the menu and bang, bang, bang?
4: Yeah, if you if you can execute that in Query Analyzer, well, then you can see the execution plan. Um, you just got to type in your statement, execute, and then the stored procedure name. Uh, go to the menu, uh, the query menus, put show execution plan and run it, hmm. and the execution plan will show. Now um, you mentioned profiler, um, so the profiler is a slightly different tool which uh, allows you to trace what's happening between uh, between a client and SQL Server. Okay. So so the execution plan allows you to see the bits of of a query or a batch and what's happening sort of internally to SQL Server. Profile allows you to to track and and get a list of the events which which occur between a client and and SQL Server, um, such as the such as the statements that it's been asked to execute. Sure. Okay. So that is is more suited to say if you've got a, if you've got a production server which is generally slow or a development server which is slow, but you're not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. Well, then you can use Profiler to actually um, uh, sort of monitor that system and see a list of all the things which are happening, so then you can perhaps isolate from that perspective you know what's going on and then drill down and query analyze it to things which are taking a long time. Because Profiler will show you things like the, the amount of CPU a statements consumed, the, the amount of I/O, and the actual duration. So if you've got a, a server which is running a process and you actually just want to find out which, which bits are taking a long time, well, then you can use Profiler, find out the particular stored procedures or queries, and then take those and put them into Query Analyzer, and then use the execution plan to actually drill down into those and find out well, which bit of these is really the problem and, and, and optimize it that way.
2: Okay. So I have to interrupt you right here to say that anybody out there who happens to know what the secret namespace of the week was, that thing that I, that I said to uh, Chris about... No, I know, I know. Chris, you don't count. Oh. you Neither you nor your, nor your wife nor your children... <laughs> Got or whatever it. other you know living things you have running around the house are allowed to enter this. But anybody else who happens to remember, now is the time to start dropping that namespace into the uh, submission form so we can pick a winner. Okay. So while those are coming in, uh, Tony, is there anything you wanted to basically? Oh, wait, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh yes, please, Carl. We actually oh, have I mean, a Carl. I called you Carl. Woo. That's all right. Chris, go I, ahead. I'm just,
3: I'm just your Carl substitute today. <laughs>
2: right. You're, you're, like, you're like the pink Carl, you know, like NutraSweet. <laughs> <laughs> right. right.
3: Less filling. Tastes great. Yeah. So um, I, we actually have a caller, and uh, she is someone I'd love to get on the air because uh, not only does she work with me, and in fact, she's in charge of the MSDN uh, Data Access and Storage uh, Developer Center website.
2: Oh, sweet. Uh, okay. But she
3: knows just like way more about this database stuff than I could ever know. So... Any, any questions or things that she would have for Tony would would be fabulous. I would love it if we could get her on the phone.
2: Well, if and I, by the I, way, her, her name is
3: uh, Krista Carpentieri. I believe I've got that pronounced Krista correctly. Krista
2: Carpentieri? Well, we'll just see about that. We'll go straight to the source. Krista, you there?
7: Yep, I'm here.
2: So how do we say your name?
7: Carpentieri. You got it right. Oh, all right.
2: Woo. Well, bravo, Chris. <laughs> so, Chris, go ahead. You uh, had something you wanted to ask her or some questions? So, Krista, I mean, what what can we do for you on this fine sunny day?
7: Uh, One thing I was hoping that uh, Tony could bring up um, that I've seen as a common uh, performance issue is you have developers who are coming from procedural languages, and they want to use cursors. They don't get the set-based programming that underlies T-SQL at all. And I was going to see, is that something he's come across a lot? Because it's something I've seen pretty frequently.
3: Hmm. Now, when you say frequently, I mean, Krista, how many people visit the data access and storage site? Uh. I mean, it's like tens of thousands of people. Yes.
7: Yeah, I would say so. We have uh, ooh, about two hundred fifty thousand a month.
3: Yeah. Okay. So yes. you you get a lot of contact with a lot of people then.
7: Yeah, and also back in back in the day when I did consulting work, um, it wasn't something that I liked to see, but it was something I came across a lot because your average developer, you know, a cursors kind of like a record set, and that makes sense to them. So that's what they want to go for.
3: So Tony, what what do you, what do you say to those people that want to use cursors?
4: So that's a common um, issue that we come across, as Kuala as, 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 as mentioned, that uh, developers which are used to writing procedural row-by-row row type processing commonly um, use cursors in and, and, and sort of procedures. And I actually um, have this rule that, which generally says in most situations you shouldn't use cursors in code, which is being executed, I guess, as part of a production application. So the, the cursors are kind of okay for doing maintenance and and batch work, but if it's an online um, process where users are sitting at the other end, then there should be a solution which doesn't require a cursor. Now, similar to that is the use of temporary tables, is that um, temporary tables allow the sort of the logic of what you're trying to do to be split up into sort of multiple steps, which is often easier for um, um, someone who's familiar with the procedural language to to come to terms with rather than creating this sort of complex uh, SQL statement which does everything as one. So I think that cursors are kind of uh, good for, uh, I guess, newcomers to SQL for uh, perhaps prototyping what they're trying to do and actually getting it out of their head into SQL Server. But I also think there should be a step post that is once you've sort of worked out what you're trying to do, it's, it's like a roll-up step or a grouping step to sort of take that logic and try and whittle it down into, um, into a reduced number of statements and into, a, into sort of um, into singular sort of SQL statements, okay? You know, often there's more efficient ways of doing the same logic within a single statement such as quite often to see a cursor opened on one table to insert rows into another table. So, so someone might open a cursor rotate through a result set and and insert rows into another table based on the result of that cursor. Now, that is less efficient because it's processing row by row, whereas a a single sort of insert statement based on a select list will do that as a single batch much more efficiently. So it's partly a learning curve, and it's also, I think, partly um, useful for prototyping, but there there should be this sort of review step where you go through and actually try... And collapse these statements down into um, you know as, as fewer SQL statements as possible.
3: So, just the danger I see, and Christy, you jump in if I if I get this wrong. But I mean, if you if you actually do spend time and write cursor usage into your prototype applications, I, I could just see the classic. Well, it works. Let's just ship it, and then you're stuck with it.
4: Sure. Well, that that happens all the time. But um, I, I guess the main issue is. I, I i mentioned that I thought that may be a useful step for people that are new to SQL because it's not always easy to change the mindset from writing these row by row processing to this statement which should which which combines all this logic and goes off as a batch and does what you need um, in the single single statement so it's um, it's it's certainly not ideal but um, apart from Training and and familiarizing yourself with SQL, there's not a lot uh, that someone who's new to SQL can do to actually create the create um, sort of complex SQL statements without having some sort of more understanding. Yeah,
7: I'd agree with that. I'd say as long as they are educated to know that they're going to suffer performance-wise if they stick with that over the long haul, uh, you know, it's not a bad interim step.
4: It's just I just it's a I way just of getting the it out of their head, I guess, um, and it's, just, it's hard, to, especially when you when you're trying to work out what the logic is, just to write a SQL statement that does it, because <laughs> you you kind of think, well, first I've got to do this, then I've got to do this, do this, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do this, and that's what I'm trying to do. But once it's out of your head and you can see it step by step by step, that's when you can start sort of saying, well, I can actually do this and this together, and then I can actually do this and this together and, and actually collapse it up into into a, 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 a more complex uh, batch-based SQL statement.
3: I would argue that, that that is the same issue that we have with any kind of distributed programming, that, you know, what's the right granularity? How do you write your application logic in the kind of semi-connected, get some information, work on it, come back later, you know, ask for another service and then of course the hard part is prepare for if things have changed underneath in an unexpected way and the nice thing about cursors while they have that you know overhead of locking things and holding the connection open is you know you don't have to worry about somebody coming along and and changing things under you which makes your programming simpler unfortunately it also puts your scalability through the floor in terms of how many simultaneous users you can hold.
4: Sure and also um you know, affects uh, you know, end-to-end uh, response time in most situations as well, right? So the actual yeah. user um, typically would be waiting longer than if you used a batch-based approach. So scalability. So, that's true, end-to-end. but
3: any individual user would be waiting longer, but uh, the, sure. the uh, overall, the system would be able to hand far more, would scale better, and that's always the trade-off, right?
4: The system would scale better using, yeah, the batch approach, yeah?
3: Yes, absolutely. Sure. Staying away from cursors is a good sure. thing.
2: Okay. Well, so uh, I hope that answers everybody's questions because we're just about at the end here. Um, So it's actually time to go on ahead and announce the winner of the secret namespace of the week thingy. And this week it is Eddie. And I don't know how to pronounce your last name. So I'm going to try three different pronunciations. I'm not sure if you're Spanish or Italian and whether or not you're like from southeastern Spain or perhaps from Mexico. This is kind of tough. So Eddie. uh, Recio, 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 um, R-E-C-I-O, you have won Windows Server 2003 Standard Edition. So we've got your information here, and we're going to get in contact with you. And congratulations. Everybody clap. Let's get a little bit of clapping going on. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo there, Eddie. Good job. And aside from that, Tony, did you have any last-minute thoughts or anything you wanted to go on ahead and say to people before we take off?
4: Um... Yes yeah, use your d b a not scary anymore. I uh, can get ready for Yukon.
2: all right, so that's some that's some those are words to live by so I guess then uh, now is the time to thank you very much, Tony, for coming on the show. Sure. Yeah, it was pretty cool, and thank you, Chris. Your check is in the mail, and thank you users and listeners and readers and whoever else happens to be out there. Uh, this is this is Donette Rocks and uh, I'm Rory Blythe just kind of shutting down the show and hoping I'm doing it right so we'll see y'all next time. Bye. <laughs>
5: Bye. <laughs>